Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. This is episode 220. Oh yeah, 220 episodes. So guess guess what I've been doing this week? Uh, CNC work. Well, a little bit of that, but also searching for connectors, which is oh, like... Oh no. Dun, dun, dun. Like the worst thing ever. In fact, so Phil G on our uh, on our Slack channel even suggested the other day, like making a shirt. Gosh, what I now now is escaping me. What is it? Oh, connectors destroy bombs, or connectors break bombs, or something like that. Which Phil, like that's freaking awesome. I love the fact that that because it's so obscure, (laughs) so ridiculously obscure that only an engineer would know it. And that's sort of like a thing that we've talked about multiple times on the podcast. So it's like pandering to like 500 people, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I think most electrical and mechanical engineers, they would, they would get it. They would get that because mechanical guys deal with connectors all the time too. Cause you have, you know, Mechanical guys make the connectors. Yeah, they make the connectors, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think they would both get it. Um, I also like your suggestion was, um, where was it? Let me scroll up. Oh, if it, if it was a shirt that said, fuck connectors. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that might have a little bit wider spread <laughs> like appeal, but I don't know. I, I, I the thing is like Phil, if you made that shirt, I would I would wear one of those. I would wear. It I would absolutely wear that just because it would be a weird conversation starter, and then it would also be a conversation ender, like guaranteed. Yeah. Like if someone's like, "Why are you wearing that?" Oh, I'm an engineer. Okay, well they're walking away. Yeah, they walk right away. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so why why are you looking for connectors this weekend? Okay, so or past weekend. Uh, been okay. So been working on some uh, some designs with a buddy of mine. And uh, one of the things we were doing for a while is uh, is some PCB mounted potentiometers, and so like there's there's a bunch of great offerings for PCB mounted potentiometers that are 90 degree. So you stick them on the end of the board, and then so your main board fits on one face of the chassis, and then 90 degrees to that, your your potentiometers poke through some side of the chassis. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. I've done plenty of designs with it. But we saw some images of uh, some guys who were doing panel mount potentiometers that have just three wires soldered to the lugs. And then they go off to a small connector that pops to the board. And I really like that from a manufacturing standpoint because it makes things a whole hell of a lot easier. You don't have a 90-degree angle to worry about uh, things lining up with holes. It also doesn't force you to have to design around specific standoffs for your main board because if you think about the stack up of everything and manufacturing process, because if you have those 90 degree potentiometers or any kind of 90 degree connector, you got to put your board in at basically a 45 degree angle into your chassis so that the connectors hit the front plate and then tilt down and slide in. Right, right. It doesn't really work that well, especially if you have items on the main board that are having to go through the top of the chassis. Uh, so, like, it's just, it's that's not a particularly good way of doing it. It totally works, but it also thinking, you know, a lot of people in, in my experience don't really put a ton of thought into this, but thinking down the line, if anyone is ever going to have to pull that board out for any reason, like if you need to service it, I've I've found so many designs where, they're really well thought out except for servicing 
Like they're just yeah, not yeah. serviceable. In fact, we were just talking about that frequency counter the other day. Like it's not serviceable at all. You have to basically break it to get it out and then repair it to get it back in. Oh, we've totally taken things apart where like in your in your example with potentiometers, where a ninety degree potentiometer was soldered in after the board was put into it. So you yeah. can't actually get it out without having to basically desolder this component. Yep. 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 So so all all said and done. I like the idea, even though it's technically more work, I like this idea of having a potentiometer that has three legs or three wires coming off to a pigtail that just connects into the board. You know, another another kind of manufacturing, I guess, uh, I don't know, like hack, I guess you could say, but something that's just been going through my mind is uh, if you have different values of potentiometer, uh, you could have different colors of wire. So if if it's three green wires coming off of this pot, that means 100K. If it's three black wires, it's one meg. Like you just don't ever mess them up. And if you have them all in bins next, you know, for whoever's doing the assembly, they just grab the black wires for this one. And and I love that too because when it comes down to like creating instructions or even drawings uh, for assemblers, you just make your drawing, put an arrow to it, and say green wires. You don't even have to tell them put a hundred k pot here. You just say put the green wire one here. Like I always like the idea of like. It's not it's not an idea or it's not the concept of like dumbing things down because people can't understand them. It's dumbing things down so that no mistakes are made. Mm-hmm. And there's just there's not really a need to ha- to for an operator to know what a 100k pot means, but they can certainly know what a green wire pot is, you know, or green wire assembly. So so what this all boils down to is I love this idea now I got to go find some connectors and I'm seriously like, Oh shit. Like I, <laughs> I hate, I hate looking for connectors. They're the worst. Uh, but, but okay. So one of the things, well, well two things that I knew I wanted with this is, well, first of all, they're potentiometer. Um, so there's, there's only three legs on this. So I need a three position guy. I want it to be foolproof. So I want it to have a uh, indicating tab on the connector. Mm-hmm. So you can't put it in backwards. Uh, and then, and then other than that, it just, needs to generally be cheap uh you know the the, it would be kind of nice if the connector was black because we do have like a color scheme going on with our assemblies and white is not part of that uh so it'd be really cool if the if it was black but i don't care if you order enough of them you can get them in any color probably (laughs) yeah we're not at that kind of quantity right now uh so so regardless uh one of the first places I actually started because I knew what the connector looked like, but I didn't know the name is Amazon. Uh, and, and the reason why is because like, okay, so you've seen a bazillion of these, you've seen a bazillion of these, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask you like, do you know the name of it? Like, okay. So think of an RC, anything, helicopter, car, plane, whatever those battery packs that you get with them usually have two, uh, two wires coming off of them and they terminate in a little white connector. What is that called? So I don't know the answer, but I know what not the answer. Okay. Yeah. All the other connectors. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, because people call those JST connectors. Yep. But that's the manufacturer, well, the original manufacturer of them. Right. Yes. Right. Because I bet you billions of companies over in China probably make them now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, header pins and a, and a plastic shroud right yeah, i doubt yeah. there's a yeah, yeah no they're making tons of them and and that's exactly it okay so everyone calls them jst connectors like that's a type of connector it's not a type of connector 
it's it is an original manufacturer uh but like the problem is like if you go searching for JST on Amazon you'll find a ton of JST connectors but then if you go over to Mauser Digikey and you search for JST connector that doesn't exist a manufacturer called JST exists right but then it's really kind of difficult to find uh to find specifically the connector you want because JST makes a ton of connectors and hence like this is the normal path of searching for connectors right like yeah. you're trying to search for for shit and then it gets oh I'm just a giant pain in the ass and <clears throat> i think i think you've actually uh talked to them before um at my first job in Houston I uh, I did talk with Samtech a lot because there was a mm, Samtech yes. rep there. And I remember Samtech came to Microfab a few times. Uh, they have, like, gorgeous catalogs. I loved their catalogs. Oh, I love their like, stuff. You could just leaf through it, and there's, like, full-page color with, like, 3D renderings of all their connectors and stuff. Well, the best thing is their website. Because it has a – you basically pick your family, and then you can just be like, I want these settings. And they're like, here's your part number that you can order. And you can order the weirdest stuff, and I usually have a couple in stock that you can get samples of, which is, like, bizarre. Oh, dude, we, uh, we got samples at my first job of connectors where they didn't even exist. They hadn't they had them in the catalog, but nobody had ever ordered them. So they literally just <laughs> sent them from their engineering lab. Like, they were like, oh, that's cool. they're not the same color. Is that okay? We're like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Um, there are... I, I, their only downside is they're a little more pricey than other companies, but I, I, all their connectors are all everything I've used from them is awesome. Yeah, they're it's super just you awesome. got to be like, well, you just have to expect, you know, it is just going to cost a little bit more. But for good connectors, that's just how that's going to be. That's how it's always going to be. In fact, you know, like when it, you know, we were talking about connectors, bus bombs, that shirt, like that's kind of why, like, you kind of want to spend money on connectors and. I don't know. As as with as with so many things, um, in fact, we're, I think we're going to talk about this later. You, it's, it all depends on your design, and it all depends on how deep you want to test everything, how much effort you want to put into it. Because, like, if you're fine with just testing the the hell out of a bunch of really cheapo connectors, and you're fine with whatever failure rate those connectors will come up with, then you know, that's up to you. Uh, Okay, so regardless, like I, I'm, I'm going to Samtech looking because I know I want a JST style, but you can't just type in JST at at some place. So I go to Samtech and I look through all of their fancy pictures, and they, of course, they don't have this kind of thing. They have like tons of like high speed, like five thousand pin connectors and stuff. I'm like, yeah. no, I, we're I'm talking about analog potentiometer stuff here. And I like how the Samtech's naming schemes are like tiger connector and stuff like this like <laughs> what's that even mean the joe exotic connector yeah the joe <laughs> the tiger king connector <laughs> yeah because like their 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 kind of art scheme is what uh tiger stripes all over the place yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, maybe it's a different company because i'm actually on Samtech's website and i don't see tiger connection maybe i saw that somewhere else no 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 i've totally seen that too yeah okay like tiger bite speed and oh, like, I think it is Tiger Bite. Yeah, it's it's all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, in fact, awesome. one of the first projects <laughs> I, I I worked on, we we Samtech made custom connectors for us for our ribbon cable that connects to uh, a, a touchscreen. And man, to be honest, I'm I'm not just trying to you know 
praise Samtech all the time here, but like they were super easy to work with, and uh, and and like I thought getting custom connectors would be like, oh my gosh, this is going to be the end of the world difficult, and it was like, no, we want a custom connector, and they're like, okay, here you go, cool. So, um, regardless, so I I did a bit more searching, and it's funny because I ended up finding the sort of general part number I wanted from an image from a kit off of Amazon of a crimp kit that had <laughs> JST connectors in it and they have like uh, they had some lettering on it that I was like wait that's got to be like a family and then I went over to JST and found out that the XH series is kind of that like that battery th- that one that everyone knows but doesn't know what it is. Yeah when you, you take know? apart some cheap electronics the battery has that connector on it. Yeah, that. Yeah. And 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 that's just the thing like I know my specs for this thing are really minimal. I don't need a very special connector. I need it to be cheap, I need it to hold, and I need it to be able to potentially take up to like 200 volts. And these connectors do exactly that. So, uh it probably won't. It most of its life will probably be sitting more around like 10 volts, but it it is possible that they could go up to 200. And luckily, this XH series is a 2.5 millimeter pitch. Uh, it comes in multiple uh, pin arrangements, and it does exactly that. So, how much isolation do you need for 200 volts? Oh, these these things have like a thousand volt uh, isolation. Okay. So yeah, that, that's no problem. And and usually I use like either 22 or 24 gauge wire in these kind of assemblies, which these are meant for that also. So basically. I'm looking at battery lead connections. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was funny that like it, 99% of the time when I search for connectors, I know the connector that I want in my head. I just have no clue what it's called. <laughs> and it's so hard to find. And, and on top of that, I'm sort of doing a little bit of uh, like, I'm, I'm, I'm establishing some groundwork for future designs also. So I don't want to just pick some rando connector that could go out of stock or whatnot. I kind of want to pick a family that I'm happy with that I could build some footprints around. And then in the future, if I ever want to pull them out, I know that they will always be there. Uh, also something interesting to note. If you go to JST's website, it looks like the website came out of like, I don't know, 1996 or something. It's not that old because I have another connector company called For You remember For Yukon? Oh yeah, their website looks like it comes out of the mid nineties. <laughs> Theirs well, okay. is like early two thousand. JSTs. Fine, maybe I'm not giving them enough credit. the o- The only problem is if you go to JST's website and you're like, "Show me your products," they're like, "Okay, here you go." And there's a list of them, and it's like forty seven pages of, of PDFs. Just, of- uh, well, no, but like, like individual lines of connectors. Like, wow! Like, how am I supposed to search your connectors? Am I supposed to just go through forty-seven pages and be like, "That one looks good. That one looks good." What? What? <laughs> I wonder if they have a catalog. It's like a McMaster thick catalog of just connectors. <laughs> you know, with the way that their website looks, I I would guess that they probably actually have a really badass catalog, and they still rely on that to get their their sales because the the website maybe i didn't find where i needed to go on the website i didn't spend a ton of time because it was just like oh good god i don't have enough time to search pages and pages of you know just random little connectors and i and once again i complained about this a few weeks ago i don't know your part scheme so like if you just have like one two bh three dash four seventy hx 
I don't know what that means. Oh, yeah, they have 10,000 of those in stock for $0.03 cents a piece. Right, right. Okay, cool. So now I have to look <laughs> at data sheets and be like, is this going to work for me? I don't know. I'm actually on their website right now. I'm looking for a... Not 1996 or 2000. Huh, interesting. I don't, they don't have like a... Because usually a lot of times with companies like this is they're like, here's our catalog that you can get. They don't have anything like that. Samtech has it really close in my opinion, to being right. Because if you go to their website, they're like, find a connector. And then they show pictures of things. And it's like, does your connector, does the connector you want look like this? And then you hover over and click, and then it goes into that family. And it's like, do you want it to look like this, this, or this? Like, you can, like, visually search and 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 use that as ideas, or you already know what type of connector you mm -hmm. want, you know? So. so it's like, it feels like JST connectors are like, it's like the, Xerox or Kleenex of the connector world. I think that's why people just use that name. Like, the, the, so the what they really okay. mean when they say when someone says JST, they really mean JST XH. Basically, yeah. Okay. And and that's the so here's the thing: JST connectors are big enough to have their own Wikipedia page. Uh, which okay, so you when, you, when that? you say JST style connectors, you think, uh. Like, you think that JST means something, where, it, no, it doesn't. See, in fact, let, let me see here. I, I just looked it up right before the... Yeah, if you go to Google and just type in JST connector, there's a Wikipedia page for it. In fact, I'm going to put the link in our, our show notes right now. Um, straight up. And, and, and the Wikipedia page is infinitely more helpful than so many others. <laughs> <laughs> the Wikipedia page has like charts and it has data sheets for all of these different models. Like go to the to the Wikipedia page first and you'll be yeah. able to get to what you want. It's like go to the Wikipedia page, measure the pin pitch what you want. Yeah. And then you can find what you want need. Yeah. Yeah, it's so great. It's actually really helpful. It's super helpful. Uh actually it's so it's funny. I I kind of wish that JST's page just <laughs> linked to the Wikipedia page. Yeah. <laughs> and, and are you looking for a JST connector? Check here first. I like how it says uh, for the XH, use in many RC batteries. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. And they also say not 0 0.1 inch pitch. Oh, yeah. Because it's 2.5. It's two mils too close. Ha have you ever run into that before? Oh, Yeah. All the time. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure at Macrofab that happens quite a bit, actually, where people uh, accidentally designed for the wrong pitch. Not as often as you would think. You would think that'd be a bigger issue, but I think most engineers look out for that. Um, I run that more in in hacking stuff together. Oh, like you have one in, in, in your drawer. Two point five versus two point five four. Like that. Yeah, yeah, basically. Because in pinball, we actually use uh, 396 a lot, which is 156 mils. So that VH series, what was it called? The, Mo the Molex KK type connectors? Okay, you know what? We're, okay, so that's another one real quick. I'm going to dog on that for just a quick second. Because <laughs> there's this nebulous term, JST connector, and in your head you know what that means, but it doesn't actually mean that. When people say Molex connector, that... That's the exact same thing, right? Like oh, the, yeah. The PC builders, concept. they just think it's the four-pin uh, accessory, what, 12-volt ground, ground, 5-volt connector. 
is what that's what they call a Molex connector. Right. And and I in fact, you know, Molex connector probably has its own Wikipedia page too. And I'm sorry, it's not and I actually just did the same thing. It's actually the Molex KK three nine six is what we use a lot in pinball. <laughs> yep, yep, straight up. Molex connector has its own uh web page. And uh, as it says, Molex connector is the vernacular term for a two-piece pin and socket interconnection, which, you know, not not to just get all like hyper anal about being correct, but it's uh, we should be calling them pin and socket connectors. Uh, and mm. in fact, okay, so that's just a thing. If you go to Mauser, in fact, I'm going to do it right now. If I'm going to Mauser and I go to connectors, and let's see here. Okay, so I just clicked on connectors, and I'm looking at all of the options that they have on here. Do they have a Molex? <laughs> no, Molex is not there, and JST isn't there. So uh, you can search for both of those brands in their filter categories, but if you're like, oh, I want a Molex connector, there's not a category for that, so it's confusing. But they do have a, a category for pin and socket connectors, uh, which... So they're not the Xerox or Kleenex of connectors yet. Not yet. No. They don't have a category or or something named after them. Molex yet. is a is a producer of Molex connectors, but a lot of other producers are also producers of Molex connectors. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get someone on the podcast that is a connect from a connector company. A connector head? Yeah. Yeah. It'd be good cuz we had, you know, capacitor. You know one thing we we haven't had resistors yet either. Because we have semiconductors, a lot of semiconductor designers, um, and capacitors, but nothing, nothing else yet. You know, I, one one thing I would love to discuss is the um, noise floor in various types of resistors, and like uh. when when you should like what's it what's a good rule of thumb for thick film versus thin film style. That's resistors? actually what I was about to ask. Is like when. Doesn't matter because in low volume they're the same price, and high volume there's a slight difference in price. So it's like okay, I, in my mind it's only like if you're building a billion of these things, then it matters, unless there's a performance reason. There are performance reasons, but I'm not going to pretend to know all the details behind that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that would be fun. Yep, we're gonna have to maybe Panasonic. That'd be cool. The ERH or the E, what is the, uh, the ERJ? The ERJ, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or is that the, no, ERJ is, is resistors. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I've seen that part number so many times. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, I was working on that, um, the zebra printer stuff. Yeah. I finally deployed that live to, um, some of our operations guys, and it's turning out really good. Um, I ended up using... Did I even talk about this last week? No, I don't think I did. Um, the I ended up using you know, JavaScript and, and uh, Zebra Printer's got a, a SDK so you can easily interface with JavaScript to their, their printers. So it, ha- so it handles like the handshaking between the JavaScript and like the uh, USB interface and all that stuff. So you really only have to hit a couple like commands, and that they've written like you basically send the ZPL, which is the Zebra programming language, to the printer, right? And it, it handles all that stuff. So that's awesome. 
Um, so I built up this whole web interface or local web interface because it uses um, JavaScript, HTML, and some uh, uh, CSS to display a web page to the operator. And then the operator can type in stuff and then hit print and it does all its things. And then I end up using, oh, what was it called? Semantic UI. So I don't know if you ever go to the MacFair website and you see all the buttons and stuff that look really cool. That's semantic UI, basically. That's like this whole library of like making stuff look fancy. That just sits on top of everything? Yeah, it just sits on top. And so it's like just a bunch of, uh, uh, it's basically the gloss, right? <laughs> uh, over over the uh, structure. The, the shellac. Yeah, the shellac <laughs> over the structure. So it makes everything look fancy. Um, it actually does make it look like a, like, I see, it only took like 10 minutes to make it look like that. But compared to a the old, like the, just straight HTML, compared to JST's web page, yeah, it actually look. There's a huge difference. Like, it's mainly about like I got to show this to our customer, and they're like amazed. Yeah, and where if I showed them just like the HTML, where it looked like Windows ninety five, they they'd probably be like, eh, whatever, right? But they saw this and they're like, wow. So it was actually worth the 10 minutes to make that work. Um, So I am going to, um, I'm actually going to write an article on my website about basically how to make that work. Like the whole process of like, okay, you got a zebra printer and you need to be able to print a template with some fields. So like, let's say you're scanning um, some barcodes and then inputting in a serial number or having it randomly make a serial number for you. Like, how do you do that? And from an, the aspect of a hardware engineer that doesn't know anything about programming, how do you make that work? Because that's basically almost, like, I know how to, like, do some programming, but, like, mixing, uh, like, a mixed, um, mixed discipline is not the right word, but I'm I, you're basically missing HTML, JavaScript, some Python, some ZPL, you're mixing all these different stuff together. How do you make all those play nice? You, you read a lot of data sheets. Well, and then not how to read everything. It's like, how can you get this working in like a day? Oh. Because yeah. you, you don't have time to spend, you know, half a year researching how to make this stuff work. Um, so I'm going to make that, I'm going to write that article. Hopefully it's useful for some people. Uh, I thought it was a lot of fun to do because I've never done anything like that before. Um, especially where at the end product, like people were like, this is crazy, amazing looking. Yeah. Like that's the first time someone's ever said that anything about any of my projects. Because <laughs> <laughs> usually it's like a circuit board and you're like, oh, what does it do? It does blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, okay. Cool. But like, yeah, like cool. Yeah. But like, this is like, it was like, wow, that looks like, it looks like a modern UI. And I'm like, yeah, I just slapped 10 minutes of paint on it. <laughs> Yeah, nice. <laughs> um, but it was like, how do you get semantic UI to work with a local application like this too? So super, super practical knowledge. Yeah, very practical stuff. Um, like if you do it this way and why it's done this way, as opposed to just like, um, actually, that's the thing. There's not any tutorials like that out here. You know, I'm surprised because like you would think that that would be something that at least somebody's thrown together, but I mean, I, you're the guy who's doing it. Yeah, it's it's like I need to. I, I this is what I need to do. I think a lot of times it's uh, most of the. 
I think we talked about this before, but it feels like software developers assume too much about yeah. the people who are using yeah. their stuff. Oh yeah. Um, whereas hardware developers, like especially if you look at data sheets, like the we talked about somewhere, data sheet is like you if you read this you understand exactly how this thing works mm-hmm. that doesn't really exist in the software world it, you know it goes back to what i was saying earlier about like uh you know an assembler might know what a 100k pot is but if you're writing documentation for them don't say get the 100k potentiometer say get the one with the green wires yes or the one in the blue bin right 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 yeah um now, there's some stuff that's different. Like, there's some really good documentation for depending on the APIs and stuff. But sometimes, some APIs, like, that I've been working with, like, I just have to hit it, hit the API endpoint, and get it, and be like, and then change my parameters a bit and get something else different. And then be like, okay, I changed something, and it resulted in this different outcome. Why? Because that's not documented. And a lot of times, that's not documented at all. Yeah. Um, you know, okay, so real, real quick tangent. Um, but still on point. I was I was talking to uh, Roz uh, the other day, who's been on this podcast before. He's Josh, he's Josh Rozier. Josh Rozier. Yeah, he he's he's been getting into um, a lot of designing circuitry on his own now, and he's doing a fantastic job for someone who who has just basically self taught. And he's making a bunch of his own boards, and he he's really got a good grasp on circuit theory. Uh, but one of the things that he's kind of anal about in a good way is like, oh, I'm focusing on like, where do I ground my circuits? How do I, he, he's, he's starting to crack that shell on like, oh, I get what my circuit is doing, but there's this magical realm of zero that I don't understand. Right. Like this huge, like <laughs> plane and world of like underworld of zero. And, and so he and I've been working on schematics together and he's like, Hey, so I've designed this circuit and I know, because I'm the one who designed the circuit, I know where these grounds go, and I know how I want them to go on the layout, but if I'm the one designing the schematic and I'm handing it to you to lay out, how do you know where I want my grounds to go because I designed this, this schematic? And I was like, hey, that's a really great question. The answer is, I don't. And the answer is also, like, I sort of do at the same time. Because, like, it's kind of up to me... Like if I'm the layout engineer, it's up to me to interpret the schematic in a in a way that makes the most sense uh, electrically. But also, if you're the schematic engineer, you need to portray that to me properly. And we started getting into these conversations about how most EDA tools are excellent at one or the other. You know, they're excellent at like, oh, this is my schematic and it looks really really beautiful, or here's my layout and it looks really really beautiful. But a lot of times, like. Do you know of an EDA tool that would instruct a layout designer on like proper grounding schemes if you, if you were no. just given a schematic? No, but how the schematic how I would treat that is on the schematic end is what I do for yeah. myself because a lot of times I'll do the schematic like a week or two weeks before everyone will touch the layout because I'll go through a couple different iterations on the schematic. Of course, yeah, that makes sense. Is um is you call them different nets. So there are different nets, and then you... So let's say you were doing a star ground. Yeah. So you would have all your different modules would be a different ground or different sections, and then you would have a node that everything, those nets go to. So you could... And then you could actually write notes like, this is a star ground, and that should be pretty obvious. But if you're doing plane and plunge, just name them all ground, because then that's what they are. They're just going straight to a plane. Sure. So 
I, I would say calling them different nets and then maybe having some notes on like what kind of grounding scheme you expect. That should be sufficient, at least from the projects that we do. And I think that's a totally reasonable way of handling it, especially if you work on a close, if you work closely with your engineers, uh, then like you guys can all establish, hey, if we see X, Y, Z thing in a schematic, that means this. Uh, but it's like, like the difference between an ant, like some of the stuff I do is you have an analog and a digital ground, mm-hmm. and you call them two separate things. So when you go to the layout, you know, oh, analog grounds usually are grouped together and the digital grounds are grouped together. So you start separating out the parts and that kind of stuff. Right. But here's the thing. A lot of EDA tools don't distinguish between those. It just says, oh, that's all net zero, which is ground. Well, no, you would, you would call the net analog ground and digital ground in this case. And then you would have a, a bridge between them that would connect them. Right. Correct. But, but a lot of EDA tools don't force that bridge. Oh no! Well, they let you call any net any net. Right. So, the, but that's just the thing. If you if you were to individually net each chunk of ground, let's say you had four or five different grounds you wanted to have, you know, chunked together, you could do that. But then your EDA tool isn't going to say like, "Hey, at the end of the day, these all need to be connected." It's happy because it's like, "Oh, all of these are individually separate." It still it would still be up to you to connect them. Yeah, in the schematic, you'd have to connect them. Right, but as soon as you connect them, then they're not individual anymore. Uh, you can connect them through, at least in Eagle, you can connect them through a, a node. Then does it treat them separately? It treats them separately, and then they are connected through a, like, a, a, compo- a pad, basically. So w- would that be like a full-on, like, you connect them through a component? Kind of. That's weird. Okay. A, a node is what I call, would call it. Or like you could connect it to a via. They're connected to one via. Oh, so they still have to be connected to an element of some sort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. See, in my in my ideal situation, you could have like say you have your analog and You're your talking about ground. like you want to be able to have virtual nets. I uh, yes, I want to have two nets that come together to make one net, but it still treats them separate. Separately, yeah. That would be super ideal, and I've never run into an EDA tool that does it. Yeah, you're right. I haven't run into... So in that case, what you would need is you would have to have... um, I don't know how DipTrace calls them, but rat nests. Like local rat nests. Well, you'd have a different rat nest. You'd have a hierarchical rat nest in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you'd have rat nests, which is all the nets, and then you could have a top-level net... uh, Excuse me, um, nets. Right, and that top level net would want the bottom level nets to connect one in with one net with one connection, basically. Well, it could be depending on your grounding scheme, because and, it's and like, this this is exactly so. So all of this we're arguing about something that we even know, and this is exactly what Roz and I have been talking about. Yeah, you know, a thousand miles apart. Like he's like, how do I tell you these things? And the whole point of me bringing up this whole tangent was that like, well, I can just look at your schematic and I I know what you're getting at. But the only reason I'd know that is because I've done it a hundred times. Uh, yeah, you could, you could on a schematic draw spots or boxes because I've done this before too. Like, like these, I'll draw like let's say I had an analog front end, a whole, a whole bunch of ADCs. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, these grounds, I'll draw a box around them, 
and like I'll draw the schematic. You're talking about the same thing though. It's like I can look at your schematic and see that. Right, right. Um, but I'm like, okay, these grounds need to be their own isolated analog ground from this analog ground because this is like the front end yep. that's like exposed to the world and it shouldn't be directly connected to the back end of the ADCs. Right. You don't want weird, weird grounds flowing all over the place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know what? What I've done in the past and what we actually ended up agreeing on is we we did dip trace where you know ground is ground. We have one ground net, but on the schematic, what we did was we just put numbers next to the ground symbols. So it's like these four ground symbols all have the number one next to them. So they all get connected together. These next five have the number two next to them, and they get connected together. And then the group one and the group two get connected via one trace. And mm-hmm. and we daisy chain that way. And so, you know, that kind of goes back to what I was saying is like, in your group of engineers, you can come up with whatever scheme you want, but it's also like, it's not a scheme that everyone else is using. There's not really a good scheme for these kinds of things. Yeah. I bet you like Cadence that does it. <laughs> for, for a $3,000 add-on package. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our multi-node oh, ground package. Yeah. So um, I've been doing a little bit more on the CNC also. Yes. Uh, and I actually, this weekend, I cut a three-hour cut on the machine. I, I did a whole bunch of different various pieces, and I ran into something that I wasn't necessarily expecting to run into it's not necessarily an issue but at the end of the whole cut i was like cool this is great and i put my hand on the spindle and the spindle was relatively warm i wouldn't even call it hot it was just warm it was above room temperature yeah yeah it was above probably blood temperature you know it was probably like it was probably like 110 or something like that okay fahrenheit and um and, and and it was one of those things where it's like normally my spindle is like icy cold uh, because I'm I'm pumping water through it, so I go, I went I went underneath my machine and popped open my water reservoir and stuck my hand in there. It's and I was like, boiling. <laughs> I was like, no, this is the exact same temperature. It's like, oh, okay, so great. Uh, basically, what I found is after about three hours of cutting, my five gallons of water and um, and antifreeze is not really doing a fantastic job of cooling anymore. No, well, you're, you're you're trying to dissipate through a plastic bucket with no surface area <laughs> well but 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 i'm also relying on the fact that water you know water is, is uh, pretty good at carrying away heat and uh and so like all the all it boils down to is that i need a radiator if i'm going to do anything over a two-hour cut basically mm-hmm. so that's sort of my next little adventure uh is to get a radiator and stick some fans on it and just pump so through that i don't know um how expensive because i Back in the day when I did a lot of water cooling for PCs, yeah, this is before like there were there was this huge aftermarket uh, surge, uh, aftermarket support for like water cooling PCs. Where now you can just like go on Amazon and you can buy a radiator that you can mount a 120 millimeter fan on. Heater cores for cars is what we used, and so because you can buy a heater core for like ten bucks, yeah. Um. If you want me to, I can go check up in my my part collection up in the attic <laughs> and see if I have a heater core that I can just ship you. Uh, yeah, sure, whatever. I mean, I was going to do exactly what you just said. Like they have tons of radiators on Amazon that you just slap a hundred and twenty millimeter fan on it, and I I would not be surprised if a you know a single one twenty millimeter fan and a radiator was enough to cool keep this cool. I would I would I would agree. 
So, um, I mean, like, I don't even, I'm not even, like, my, my flow rate is not even really that high. So I was just going to slap that on there and just have that go to town. So you can buy one for $15. A radiator? You, you, yeah, you can buy you can buy one. I'm not shipping you. Anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and and the funny thing is, I have I have a fan that runs on on 220, uh, just lying around. Perfect. So I'm just gonna slap that on it and be done. You know? Okay. Also, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull something out of the grave here. If I really wanted to, up in my garage, I do have the SSPS sitting up there, and there's two <laughs> giant radiators in there. So <laughs> that's I, where your graveyard's at. Uh, yeah, yeah. I could, I could cannibalize one, uh, for the sake of science, you know. Mm-hmm. So w- just w- do that. That way, you don't have to just you don't have to order anything. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll probably, I'll probably just end up doing that. So <laughs> the, uh, but I, I was, I mean, there was no like downside. The CNC still ran fine. I, I wouldn't yeah. go much more than that because it probably would start ramping up in temperature pretty quick. But, I, you know, one of the things was I, I was thinking about, it, I was like, hmm, I ran three hours. I g- can guesstimate what my temperature was before and I can guesstimate what my temperature is after. Or I, hell, I could even measure it if I wanted to. I was like, maybe I should do the calculation to find out like what the what the amount of heat energy was being dumped from the radiator. I was like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. You should. You should, though. <laughs> Like I would totally do. What that. is what is my instantaneous heat dissipation due to the water flowing through my spindle, and see how efficient it is? Because there's a lot. There is a ton of thermal mass, like a like a lot of thermal mass in five gallons of di water. You know, mm-hmm. to heat up that much, uh, I'm, I'm sure that. I mean, okay, so I was running my my spindle at 10k RPM. I don't know what that what that um what the like the duty cycle is for that. Actually, wait. 10k RPM would be a 50% duty cycle or a little less than 50% duty cycle. So is it the max speed 20k? The max speed is 24k. Okay. Well, and I mean 24k is probably not 100% duty cycle. So I don't I don't know exactly what it So I don't yeah, it's probably a little less than 50% duty cycle on three phase so i could guesstimate how much juice was being dumped into the machine and then guesstimate how much i'm taking out of the machine it probably it probably depends on load too uh it does because it's a constant torque uh spindle so i don't know i was doing uh one inch a second at 0.1 inch depth of cut into mdf that's really not that heavy of a load I don't know. That's that's uh, if I feel like getting my math hat on, I'll go and do that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did a little more work on the Jeep Fan Evolution to a body control module. Um, well, I say work on. I bought things. <laughs> hey, that counts. That counts, right? That yeah. counts. Um, so Fabio and Roger on the MacFab Slack channel suggested the NRF series of microcontrollers for this. Um, specifically, I bought the NRF52-DK Arduino-compatible development board. It's like 39 bucks, So I bought two of them. And the main thing, though, is I, I went and found uh, there's a uh, configuration for Arduino IDE for it. So it should be all groovy when they finally show up. Basically, I want to do a proof. Of con- Hopefully, by next podcast, I have a proof of concept, basically, of like, a unit in low power mode and you press a button and a light lights up on the other one. 
if that works, then I'm like, good. I can start doing a layout. <laughs> <laughs> Go straight to layout. Well, schematic and then layout. Yeah. Basically, I'm like, okay, the software is good enough to make that work. Then I can do everything else. Yeah, you can be pretty confident. Yeah. So that's 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 the funny thing is that's my level of prototyping at this point. Like with like jumper wires and stuff. Like it's really like okay, the software proof of concept works. Let's just go let's get boards built. That's just the evolution of Blinky. Yeah. <laughs> right? No, okay. How many times have we talked about that? Like the very first thing you do is just make sure that your your processor can come up and blink an yeah. LED and you're like, okay, I'm ninety percent done with this project. i think that's a better title than why i came up with this podcast is jst the xerox of connectors or is blinky 90 percent of your project yeah that's a better that's a better one's good cool what about uh what about your 3d printer um i think i talked did i talk about this last week i don't remember no that was a whole week ago man I don't remember at all. 220 episodes, they all run together. Yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I was talking about um, taking it apart and fixing it. Still waiting on the parts. Um, the main one is the fans. I'm still waiting. Basically, I want to get all the parts in before I take it down and, and do a rebuild. Um, but I did experiment with some hops number nine, which is a... a the gun oil. Um, a gun oil slash cleaner. It's like a, it's a built has a cleaner. It's like two in one shampoo, <laughs> where it cleans and conditions it's at the same time. It just does it does neither really well. You shower with detergent, don't you? <laughs> detergent more <laughs> Tide on your head. Um, just don't eat the Tide Pods, kids. Yeah. Um, so hops number nine is like a beginner gun oil, right? Because it comes in all the cleaner kits and stuff, but it's it's really it has a solvent in it, so it's really good at cleaning stuff, and it has a a protective oil it leaves behind. It is really it is the tune. It's a condition a shampoo and conditioner. Yeah, head and shoulders. Um, and so I actually tried it, and my printer is running right now. It is quieter than it's ever been. It seems to work. Would I recommend it? No, maybe you're not sure. It, my, my sample size is one printer. Right, because uh, so I think we I think we talked about you using hops. Well, I don't know, two weeks ago, something like that. And so like it's still running. So let's it's let's running. just call this a long term test. Yeah, long term test. Basically, maybe that'd be like once a month. We'll be like, is it still running? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and then after I don't know six months, it'll be like hops is good. <laughs> yeah. The main the way to really do that would be to use it. And then actually check the wear under like a microscope. But that and to like filter out the oil and see if there's any like particulate uh, that is oh, picking yeah, up. Oh, yeah, from the bearings. Yeah. But both of those things we are not capable of doing. No, they're not. No. Actually, the funny thing is I do send my engine oil to a lab for my cars. Do you really? Uh, on one of them I do. My uh, my Jeep Wagoneer, uh, not Wagoneer, uh uh, Wrangler because it has a new engine and so I this is like the first time I've ever owned a vehicle that like I know the entire lifespan of something because I buy all my vehicles used so I'm like this engine is brand new so I have like uh, charts of like all its wear numbers <laughs> hey nice yeah you're having fun with it I, I like it because like you can see like 
like when I, I when I redid the oil pan on it, you can actually tell by the numbers of the oil change afterwards because it had a slightly higher silicon com, uh, content from the gasket, bleeding out some silicon. Yeah, into the oil. Damn, it's crazy what you can find out. <laughs> Just going a little too deep into it, man. Eh. Hey, you're having fun with it. Yeah, it's it's a hobby. So, and given that you know how much money I put into that Jeep, I'm like, okay, I want to know what I'm doing maintenance wise is keeping that engine alive as long as I can. Sure. So, and you can tell that by the wear numbers. So, cool. RFO time. Yeah, let's hit the RFO. We we got a really cool article this week. Uh, one that that um, Parker actually shared with me earlier in the week, and I I read through it today, and I was like, oh, we need to talk about this. Just it's it's kind of interesting. Funny enough. I only read like half of it, and you've read the whole thing, and I was the one who sh- shared it. <laughs> <laughs> well, last week you were like, hey, we should talk about this. So I was like, okay, yeah, I know. Well, I need to read it. Well, you sent me like a summary and everything like a couple hours ago, and I'm like, well, I guess I need to actually read this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this article comes our way from uh, signalintegrityjournal.com, and it's titled The Myth of the Three Capacitor Values, which – Okay, so what's interesting about this is I I didn't even know that that myth existed previously. Me neither. Maybe I'm too young of an engineer, but this is basically, this article is talking about using multiple different bypass capacitors on your power pins of your components. So... Uh, you know, I so let's just put it this way. I didn't know about the myth of the three capacitor values, but I knew, I guess, what this article is talking about, the myth of using multiple capacitors on a bypass pin. I like the title because usually when it's like the myth of blah, 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 it's usually like the scary little children. Yeah. So maybe this is supposed to scare, like, engineers. You know, it's it's actually, in my opinion, is sort of written you know, that way. The capacitor boogeyman is going to get you. <laughs> All three of them. <laughs> so so uh what, what what a lot of this is talking about is using um we've all probably seen this before but you know the impedance chart of a, of a capacitor where at some point a capacitor stopped acting as a capacitor and starts acting as an inductor and you can kind of basically plot that based off of its value but also some other characteristics like its component size and things like that so if you want to have the bathtub curve bathtub impedance curve of low impedance from low frequency way out to, you know, the bazillion hertz, then uh, you use multiple capacitors in parallel of uh, lower and lower values. So like, you know, one microfarad, 0.1 microfarad and 0.01 microfarad, and you kind of smear the entire impedance chart or, uh, you know, you get low impedance out to infinity. And uh, what this what this article is talking about is that's not necessarily true, and that idea of using three uh, capacitor values is has been a rule of thumb, and I think they were mentioning things like that's been a rule of thumb for like fifty years or something like that. And engineers just do that. In fact, there's there's some examples of modern data sheets where they're showing like power pins on modern processors where they were suggesting use multiple different values on there. And what this article kind of breaks down or starts to talk about is MLCC capacitors nowadays, so in your standard 0805, 0603, 0402 packages, kind of their, I shouldn't say kind of, their package 
the argument is that their package definition or their dimensions have much more of an impact on the impedance curve than the value itself. Therefore, these MLCC components actually do a better job per capacitance value of having low impedance out to high frequencies than doing multiple capacitors in parallel. So multiple capacitors in parallel have uh, some significant drawbacks because you can actually get peaking based off of um, resonances in between the three capacitors. So the author of this article in is, that short little trace between them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, the, whatever ESL and ESR and, and, and on top oh, of inside that, the multiple caps. Okay. Yeah. Right, right, right. Well, and, and the, the thing is the, that rule of thumb with using three capacitors stems from old school through hole designs where you use a big, a physically large capacitor uh, for the high value. And then the next one down is lower in value, but also lower in size. And then the one down from that is lower in value and lower in size. And so not only are you changing value, you're changing the physical dimensions of the capacitor, but that doesn't necessarily apply if you're using three 0603 capacitors. Mm, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I see what you're saying. So it's interesting. The argument at the end of the article is not to use three different capacitors, but to use three capacitors of the same value. Interesting. I wonder how, because um, how I design a lot of my LDOs, and this stems from the older idea, and this is from knowledge that's been passed on to me by other designers. I've never actually tested this, and it's actually a really good idea, is uh, I actually, we should, we should, oh, a couple weeks ago, we had a podcast, uh, an RFO about testing power supplies. Yeah. So we should probably hit up, um, we should probably hit up a, a, uh, one of these, like, uh, testing manufacturers who makes oscilloscopes and stuff so we can get like really good lab equipment <laughs> like keithley yeah like keithley and then um because what i do is a lot for my l this is mainly for ldos um low voltage dropout regulators is so that's lean linear regulation is not switchers switchers i pretty much like i'm like doing the textbook what the data sheet says oh yeah and most of the time they tell you like just do this yeah, yeah. But for LDOs is is a little bit different. So what I typically do is I will use a uh this is for like normal like five volt to three point three volt regulation under an amp is twelve oh six ten microfarad cap, a uh, ceramic cap, surface mount, oh eight oh five one microfarad, oh six oh three point one microfarad. If I have the space, that's my stack up. So I'm changing the size and the values yeah. going down mm -hmm. because if you the main thing what you want to do is to make sure your crossover on basically your frequency because you know how there's a the, the frequency charts yep. on their on their uh, capacitance levels where the C becomes an L yeah you don't want them to be the same right the troughs to be the same so changing the values and the size pretty much always guarantees that they're going to be not crossing so you're going to have capacitance. So, so the thing is, and, and I'm not saying that this is true just because this is the first time I've seen it and I'm still raising an eyebrow to it. But if you read this article, this article is basically saying that's garbage. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd love to test it. Yeah. It would be really cool. And, and you know, the funny thing is we, we were talking about this earlier in the podcast and I said, I was going to bring it up later. 
the kind of the whole thing of this article is like at the end of the day you just have to test your your circuit like you yeah. know like if, if you do <laughs> you're right, you're it right. if you do it one way or the other it sort of doesn't matter just if your circuit works it, it works right yes yes um now i had to go look at the article and so it would be basically so if i had 10 1 point 1 so I, I basically have an effective 11.1 microfarad capacitor there. And so the article is saying I should pick 11.1 microfarad capacitor, three of the same size? Actually, here's what the article says. And this uh, this is something I, I totally don't agree with uh, for, for a lot of good reasons. But it's it was basically saying, like, if you if your component that you have available is 0402, pick the largest value that you can find in 0402 which is like 10 microfarad and it goes put three of those in there it basically those said, are expensive well and and so like what whatever the the biggest you can afford i guess whatever uh, but like that's the the argument that this article was saying is like you'll get better response from picking the largest the largest value within the particular size you're going with and just using three of those than you would with doing the whole one two three separate values now I was actually talking to my boss about this mm. today in our design. So I was like, you know, that's that's kind of interesting and kind of uh, curious. But like, we pepper our boards with 0.1 microfarad caps for bypassing. It's like if we bumped all of those to to 10 microfarad and did three of those on every power pin, do you know what the short circuit turn on current would be? <laughs> Your like, inrush. Yeah, the inrush <laughs> would just be. I mean, like it would be so ridiculous. So I don't know, like. The, once again, it boils down to like you have to be the arbiter of your design. You can't just like make choices, like ridiculous choices with all these things. So, all right. I think we haven't had a a um, a project on the podcast in a long time. Mainly since we're in two different states now. We are like we were social distancing before it was cool. <laughs> um. I think this should be our first, our first uh, like project, like team project for the podcast. We come a long up, time. we come up with a project every podcast. I know, but <laughs> we're like we don't do them. No, we don't. And and we usually come up with projects that are like my project or your project. Right. Yeah. No, this is a, this it, is a good joint one. This is a good one, and because this is the thing, you're really good at the simulation stuff, and I can get them built like right away. <laughs> I'll do the yeah. layout. And stuff. Well, okay. So, so if we were to do this, we would have to come up with a a way that makes the most sense to actually test if it's worth if it makes a difference. Yeah. So I would say we have to come up with the test what we want to test, how we test that. Yeah. And then the different inputs, like basically all the different layouts we want to do. Like I, I've got in my opinion, we just stick with LDOs. So we pick like one LDO and then, or maybe we can do the same footprint, but different LDOs that we can pop in there. Um, and then different capacitor configurations. And then, yeah, I, I see mean, what happens. I, I, I love the idea. It would be really cool to, in simulation, um, populate non-ideal components. So every capacitor has an R, an L, and a C. Uh, and mm -hmm. then, and then, you know, actually simulate that. This sounds like a really great 
situation where we can kind of lean back on our Slack channel because there's a lot of really smart people in there that probably would be able to come up with a great test plan on how we can actually say conclusively this is worthwhile or this is not, you know, yep. one one way or another. So, And I think another way to go about it too is also one of the things I want to test is the price. Ooh, that's good. Because that's that's the the thing about this article is it's like yeah, put the biggest value in an O four or O two package because that's like you know the smallest package, so you have lower ESL and ESR. But ten microfarad O four twos are expensive. You know, and and at the same time, uh, what I'm what's kind of going through my mind right now is like, okay, so take uh, whatever LDO you have, and let's say you you have a pretty heavy load. Let's say you're pulling 500 milliamps off of an LDO at five volts. That's pretty mm-hmm. hefty, right? Uh, so that's one situation where you have a really high current application, but then choose a whole different application where that LDO is powering a processor running at 300 megahertz, completely different type of load, really high frequency pulses uh, and, and things. Mm-hmm. So like I'm thinking it needs to be tried in multiple applications. Like, Low voltage, low current, you know, high frequency voltage in current, high current, like, you know, different, different applications. So we would need a, we would need a programmable load that can do that then. Yeah. Or just plug it into a processor or plug it into a giant resistor or something. Now I like, I like having a, cause I, I would assume if we can get a testing, uh, manufacturer on board, we can get a programmable load that we can say, pull 300 milliamps at this frequency Hmm. You know, yeah, an active it cycle yeah. between like you know two hundred and three hundred. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of simulate a a processor that's just like flipping a bunch of LEDs on and off. Actually, I bet you you could probably just uh, do like a square wave load. Basically, you, like you were saying, do the do the load, but then um, see how the impedance like flattens out the curves on the on the yeah. on the, the the current pulses. Well, we're going to have to lean a lot on our Slack channel. To- yeah. I think if the Slack channel comes up with the tests they want to test for, yeah, we'll make it. We'll make it. We'll make it work. Yeah, that's cool. Let's let's all argue about it on our Slack channel. Yep. Yeah, this is cool. I I, I kind of have. Sorry, I, I I'm going to call another person out here. I kind of have a feeling that Tom Anderson's going to have some thoughts on this one. He seems like the kind of guy <laughs> that will know. Like this is what we're going to test it. Yep. Yeah. Man, I was trying to end the podcast, but <laughs> well, that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Stephen Craig, and Parker Dolman. Take it easy. Later, everyone. <laughs>